today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The son of a Hamilton mobster gunned down in the doorway to his mountain home. Uh, what do we know about this uh, reason for it, especially these brazen type uh, killings that we have seen in the Hamilton area? Uh, normally that were uh, conducted out more discreetly, now going on in the middle of residential neighborhoods at the front doors of people's homes. Uh, let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's uh, actually warming up today. So, What does this say to you? I mean, it doesn't appear that this person was directly involved uh, with organized crime, yet certainly related to it uh, through family. What does this say to you? Well, it says to me we've got some pretty serious uh, homicides going on over the last little while with not much uh, light being shone upon them as to what they're over. I mean, it's, they're going to be over something. There's a motivation behind them all. And uh, this is just another targeted classic uh, mob hit. Uh, let's talk about that. Uh, classic mob hits, uh, always done in, 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 in the center of a, a residential neighborhood like this. I mean, usually in the past, haven't they been a little bit more discreet in how they're doing business? Are you surprising this is becoming so brazen? Uh, well, they have been brazen in the past, and you're right, for a while there they were done differently. But what we've seen is, is a similarity here where you've got someone being stalked. They're getting out of their car out in front of their home. They're being shot at close range, uh, murdered on the scene like there's no nobody living. Uh, the bad guys are gone. And in this case, we don't have a description of uh, how many shooters, uh, a car or a direction of travel or anything at this point as far as I can tell. But it's uh, it's pretty much the classic way these things get delivered. Uh, what do we know about this? As you mentioned, not a lot of information at this point. Well, I think actually, you know, I'm just Google Earthing and having a look around the scene and all that sort of information, reading a little bit with what the police are saying and not saying. And what the police are, are, are not saying is they don't have any direct information, which doesn't mean they don't have indirect information about what's going on. Uh, the home, as I'm looking at on Google Earth and around the area, there seems to be a few... Uh, video cameras that are there that likely would have captured some of the information. We had a freezing, freezing cold day when this was going on. There's the possibility of uh, tire tracks being captured or shoe steps being captured. I mean, that's the interesting part for me is the person who was doing uh, this hit, they had to wait somewhere or get a tip off somewhere that the person was coming home. Or as we've seen just recently in a mob hit down in New York, there was actually a tracking device that was on um, the victim's car. So somehow, somewhere, someone was waiting in cold or not-so-cold place to come out to to pull the gun and pull the trigger. What does it say to you that this uh, appears to be uh, someone who is not necessarily involved, doesn't have a criminal record, uh, was not known to police, but, uh, you know, the son of someone who was? Well, not known to police can mean a lot of different things, right? doesn't mean not known to intelligence services or or the RCMP, uh, you know, there appears to be no, there's no public connection, if you will, and no public convictions or arrests or crimes of that sort of thing. Although I will note that the last few times we've had some people killed uh, from Hamilton to Toronto to up in Woodbridge, uh, that they do have some sort of connection to the real estate industry as this, as this gentleman had. As I said, we don't know anything, but it's pretty tough when you're born into what appears to be 
a a mob sort of royalty family to uh, not get caught up in it in, in in some way, even if you're an innocent person. Uh, trying to send a message. What does this say? Doing it in this brazen style, right? In, you know, in front of the man's home. Well, what what it's really doing is it's it's imposing a message. It's not just sending a message. It's imposing a message. I mean, this was this is a man killed in front of his parents' home, uh, right there. Uh, so there's there's a big struggle going on with people not terribly worried about how the message gets sent. And you know the question is is what is it over? It is over a personal beef. Hard to believe that people want to go to that much trouble and raise that much attention of the police, or is it over uh, over money? Uh, how concerned are police and should others be um, because these things are happening in residential neighborhoods? Well. I mean, I guess I guess it's the old story. You don't have to worry if you're not in the mob. You're not going to be targeted. So in a certain way, there's not a great risk to public safety. They're certainly showing the restraint of uh, firing the bullets up close and only another victim, not drive by spraying a house like we did see once before. So I don't know that there is a terrible risk to the to the public, but it, it's what's uh, bubbling underneath. And, you know, the question needs to come up. Do the police have the resources these last number of years to be dealing with uh, the mob and organized crime the way they've had been. We've got police being pulled in all sorts of directions with strained resources. And are there enough police to be able to stay on top of this? Uh, that brings, uh, you know, begs the question, as you were mentioning, what about intelligence? Uh, are we focused on other things uh, to take manpower away from uh, intelligence operations like this? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the question. You look at what's going on between pot, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, gangs, what's going on with other things that are being called out for the police to work on and do, and not a lot of hiring, everybody's standing around. Uh, I don't know if we're, if we're going to hear a statement. I haven't seen one yet from the Minister of Organized Crime, Bill Blair, who's supposedly in charge of all this, if, if he has a statement to make out to the people of Hamilton about what's going on. Uh, I mean, uh, certainly the file would be on his desk. So what are police doing now? What, what, what sort of, what's the process at this point after, you know, obviously uh, the dust has settled a bit and, and the investigation has started? What are they doing? Well, classically, what we've seen the last little while is they're, they're gathering all of the forensic evidence they possibly can. As I said, it appears to me there certainly were some cameras in the area, so they're going to look at that. Uh, they're going to be taking in the forensic evidence from uh, uh, the gun. Uh, how many shots were fired. They're going to be looking at that. They'll obviously be looking if they've got anything to do on any cars or vehicles, uh, looking at tire treads, perhaps checking cell phone activity in the area, going over the vehicles, as I say, to see if there's any sort of GPS device uh, put on the vehicle, perhaps on the phone of the person uh, who is the victim here. Uh, what we've seen the police do the last uh, number of times is for months, they run down their leads quietly before coming out and asking for the public's help. That's what we've seen in these last few uh, hits that have gone on. So I imagine this is going to follow the same the same script. Yeah, we were talking about these uh, last couple happening in residential areas. And as you mentioned, uh, many homes have closed-circuit uh, security systems on them, cameras, that sort of thing. I mean, how has that changed the discussion? Because you just can't walk up in someone's, well, obviously you can, <laughs> um, without being recorded. Yeah, and if the people know that that's there, though, they, they they make the appropriate adjustments to their game for how they're doing it, unless they're 
unless there's sort of... What do you mean uh, by that? What do they do? Well, they'll they'll wear completely uh, dark clothing, gloves, hats, masks. You won't be able to see their faces. They'll perhaps take the license plates off the car or put on other false license plates to start with to slow it down sort of thing. Uh, Those sort of things is is what they'll do. But you also sometimes see that if there's a stooge that's involved in the hit who goes and does the hit, I mean, we haven't seen this. This hasn't been the habit, but sometimes you'll find another stooge end up shot somewhere else after they did the job. You know, uh, you know, the concern here in this case is this: the family, if, if not this victim, the uh, Lupino family, is tied to the mob that has lots of dealings between Hamilton, uh, Quebec, and New York State. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, you could certainly see that if someone was coming in to do that to do a hit, they might have even come in from the states. Is so, it? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No. So it's. It won't be someone who's necessarily known or they don't have any record on them. So it's going to be the intelligence service's job to run that down, border services, who's come across and see those sort of things. Is it obvious that there's some sort of power struggle going on, some sort of alignment for uh, control? Well, I mean, I think so. When it comes down to the shooting, we've seen uh, just in Quebec, there was a couple of other shot uh, people murdered recently uh, with ties to the mob. So it seems to have been going on for this last six months or a year. Uh, this seems to have been going on. And, you know, the, the, the article that is in the spec does a good job of running down the, the history, if you will, and the biography of, of the family and the crime family here. You almost need to, to read it like the Godfather movies to see the history of all this and how it goes. I mean, I'm reading the detail in there that the grandfather of this man was reported when he came over from Calabrese to come over here as a mafia kingpin, kept the severed ear of yeah. someone he killed in his, wow. his wallet was the lore of it, right? Going back to the lore of it. So this is this has certainly got some history here. Do you think people view this differently because of the history and the history that this city has with it? Well, something people need to look into. I don't think we do a good enough job of talking about the effects of organized crime, uh, the things that they're involved in, from you know drug dealing to to human trafficking, the prostitution, uh, and then certainly where they're working within uh, you know legal regulated fields like doing things in real estate and development and and all the issues they do there. They've got a big effect on our lives, and they make uh, they make a lot of money. And uh, I guess also, I mean, who knows if this is related? But I guess we got the Super Bowl coming up on Sunday, don't we? Huh. How there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of betting that goes on. Yeah, in really. The Super Bowl. A lot of a money change. A lot of money changing hands this weekend. There, there is going to be a lot of money. So, uh, are these cases because of the history and and the connections and such? Are they hard for police to prosecute? Harder, well, I guess. Well, yeah, they are because when you look at groups like uh, like the mob, they've got a very well-established protocol about how they vet people, how they do communications, generally speaking, how they keep records. They're aware that the police are looking at them, so they, they're very diligent about using uh, methods and ways to circumvent, to not have any fingerprints on the different issues. So they're pretty smart. The police are also very smart, but they need the resources and the money to keep on top of it. And it's expensive if you're going after someone who also uh, is using all sorts of counter surveillance themselves and counter intelligence to 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 keep uh, their tracks covered. Can police get ahead of this, or is it more or less reactionary at this point? I don't know. It depends how 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 good the police's uh, intelligence yeah. happens to be on a certain file. Because what happens is sometimes, like with a lot of times with the police, just 
you pull on the one thread and the one thread leads you to something that just pulls the whole thing apart and opens it up for you. So it, it depends on what the, what the police are sitting on and, and what goes on. And like if they've got the resource to sit, follow and do this, it takes a lot of resources to, uh, to monitor all of these people. Just a, whole, a lot. How do police in Montreal or Toronto react to this news? Well, everybody who's, who's involved in the intelligence files, uh, who works with the RCMP and the intelligence services, they're all pretty pretty good at being wired and talking to each other, but they're also very busy, too. They've got lots to work on. And, you know, one of the issues that, you know, doesn't get talked about too much, we, you know, we talk about not having proper staffing on different police departments, you know, and not having enough. One of the things you need, Scott, is you need... Uh, cops who have been around for quite a while who've got the training and the ability to go up to work on these squats. It's not a it's not a right out of the police college go jump on a wire follow sort of thing. You have to have yeah. some real smarts, and you also have to have the talent uh, for doing uh, undercover intelligence work. Not every cop is cut out for it. Trust me. I mean, I looked at some some cops that I knew that did it uh, deep undercover. And, uh, you know, I, I bow to them and I say, I'm not worthy. I could not do the job that they do for how they're able to, to do it. So it takes talent um, as well as just resources. You need the talent to do the work. That ain't a nine-to-five job. It's not. And it takes a certain mental attitude to, to get in and out of it. And that's why they rotate uh, the majority of the police in and out of there so they don't get too stuck up in it themselves with like, you can't live your whole police career as Sonny Crockett, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it. running around, even though you might want to, and it's a little bit of fun, you have to watch for that. So it, it, it takes a real skill, and you know what? It takes a lot of time away from the family, and yeah. uh, it's pretty stressful. You're, you're, you're essentially leading a double life yourself. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto cop, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, to find out more. Son of a Hamilton mobster gunned down in the doorway of his mountain home. Ross, thanks for the time and insight as always. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jagmeet Singh uh, waiting to become, uh, I guess, official. He, well, he is leader, but he's certainly not represented in the uh, represented in the House of Commons because he doesn't have a seat. Uh, Burnaby South up for grabs right now. You might remember uh, just a few weeks ago, a Liberal candidate there uh, had to step down because of a blog post that she had uh, uh, put up in regard to uh, Jagmeet Singh being of Indian descent and her the only Chinese candidate and such. Uh, that would have appeared to give him a little bit of an edge. However, many are questioning now whether he will win that by-election and what happens if he does not. To talk more, uh, more about all of this, David uh, Mosscrop is with us, postdoctoral fellow, Simon Fraser University, author of When Is Deliberation Democratic and is on the line with us now. Uh, thanks so much for the time, David. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, you've heard the concerns, obviously, over Jagmeet Singh. What are his chances in Burnaby? I think he'll win. Um, I think the numbers are still pretty good. They're obviously campaigning as if uh, the party's life depends on it. A lot of attention is on them. I haven't really had a lot of attention in the last year or so. It's been part of the problem. Um, I, I think the chances are good. But, of course, the upshot is if he doesn't, you know, so this, and the unlikely chance that he doesn't win, the consequences will be pretty grave. Um, is this a lot about nothing? Is this a lot of hoopla? Well, it depends on whether he wins. And I think it's reasonable to ask these questions now and have this conversation because it informs the public interest and maybe people in Burnaby care about that. 
Uh, and they have this opportunity to contribute to what ends up being much more than just a by-election, right? Because this isn't just a normal by-election. It's an election year. It's the leader of the third party. And if he loses, he might well not be there anymore. So I, I think the, the chatter is actually appropriate for once. Uh, most thought that once, uh, uh, I believe it was Karen Wang, uh, posted the post that she did and then uh, was forced to step down, that this would pretty much be a, a shoe-in for him. Are you surprised we're having this conversation now? No, I mean, people think that local candidates matter. <laughs> it's nice to think that they do. Um, they don't really matter that much. It's, it's a little different when it's a leader and there's a lot of attention. But, you know, look, people vote based on um, the party that they identify with. Uh, that's a huge, 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 has a huge impact on voting tension. Uh, the liberal brand is strong. Lots of people still like Trudeau. By-elections are often tough times for the government. They tend to go the other way. Um, but the, the liberals are popular. And, and Trudeau is still popular. So it's not surprising to me that the, the liberal brand is still strong in Burnaby. And it was never a slam dunk for the NDP. People think because it was an NDP seat, uh, it would continue to be no matter what. But it was a close election in 2015. The fact that it is an NDP government, although uh, propped up by the Green, how much of an advantage is that? Well, I, it depends. I mean, people, it's, it's funny. In a federation, people have a hard time sometimes distinguishing provincial, federal. They blame parties across, uh, you know, they might be upset with the, with the provincial NDP, right. and so they want to... They want to harm the federal NDP or they want to reward. It, it's often a mess and people make, uh, get confused all the time. Um, I, I think it probably, on balance, won't have too, too much of, a, of an impact for him. Um, but if you ask the question, you know, would he prefer there be a liberal government in, in British Columbia or an NDP government? I guess it depends on how well that government would be doing. You know, in an ideal world, we're saying there'd be a liberal government doing terribly in Victoria. <laughs> that would help him just fine. And in Ottawa, for that matter. So the NDP brand still strong in BC? I think so. I mean, I, you know, the 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 other by-election, the provincial by-election, we just saw as an indication that in the Nanaimo, for instance, that the, you know the NDP is doing fine. Um, the provinces is, is typically kind of stacked a little bit against them, and in the federal election, there will be tougher them in a couple of ridings, so it's not a slam dunk. But they're competitive there still. In fact, they're they're more competitive in BC than on average still. Uh, what about the candidate that replaced, uh, replaced Karen Wang, Richard T. Lee? Uh, what are his chances? Uh, how credible is he? Well, he's a former uh, B.C. Liberal MLA. Um, he was a safety pick. I think uh, he sort of cuts across, you know, the, how the B.C. Liberals work. Is there a mix of, of sort of federal liberals and the federal conservatives? They're, they're a sort of center-right coalition. Um, so he was a pretty safe pick. He's, he's competent. He's not going to, I don't think, incite anybody. But I, I, my guess was after what happened with Karen Wang, the liberals just didn't want any more embarrassments. I think he's the kind of guy you pick when you don't want to end up in the headlines for the wrong reasons again, which the liberals desperately do not want to do. So uh, did Karen Wang, the situation uh, around her, did that help Jagmeet Singh? I mean, probably, because it does a couple of things. Um, you know, it, for one, it improves his chances because the Liberals lose a candidate. It disorganizes the Liberals. It costs them a couple of weeks of bad press, right? And, and when you're reacting to the press, if you're a political party, you don't get to talk about the things you want to talk about. So there's two problems when that happens. One is you get embarrassed. 
And the second is you don't you lose the time. You can't talk about the things you want to talk about, whether it's the economy or jobs or the child care benefit or whatever it may be, housing. So um, it certainly helped him for a couple of reasons. How did the Wang story play out in B.C.? How was that received? <laughs> I, 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 B.C. is such a charged environment because, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's the mm. scandal in the legislature. There's the casino money laundering. There's housing prices, the influence of foreign money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for a lot of folks, it just confirms a lot of frustrations um, that, you know, B.C. politics is a little bit wacky, a little bit incompetent, and a little bit corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot of frustrations that were vented through that as well. But I, again, I think most people won't dwell on it too, too much. I mean, they'll, you know, you scoff at the headlines for a couple of days. The media chases it for a couple of weeks and they removes the home with their life. I mean, I don't think it's going to be something we're talking about for long. Once this by-election is over, it's over. Um, but, you know, it does reinforce a little bit that, that BC is the Wild West. And, and critically exposes the fact that WeChat, which is where Karen Wang posted this thing in the first place, is a bonkers space uh, where a lot of nasty and, and unusual political activities taking place. What does that say? We need to pay attention. Well, it means, we, it means we need to pay attention to that. And we need to make sure that that media outlets have Mandarin speakers um, who can go on to WeChat, mm. uh, who can poke around in these places and better understand, it's especially in British Columbia, where this is more common. Are you surprised Wang made such a mistake as if, you know, just by writing it in Mandarin that the rest of the press wouldn't find out? You know what? I, I talked to some folks, um, friends of mine who are uh, Mandarin speakers, um, and I got the sense that there might well have been a bit of a miscommunication there. So I think there was a part of it was perhaps hubris, Part of it was a miscommunication. You know, it was it was an inappropriate thing to say, full stop. Anyway, but I don't think it was quite as malicious as everyone's making it out. Um, but I do think it betrays a certain ignorance and incompetence. Um, but there's an old saying, you know, that we apply to politics and beyond: never attribute malice where incompetence will will do the ex- explaining. Uh, will do the explaining. Um, so I, I tend to. Yeah, can you really plead? Can you that. really plead ignorant for this? I mean, let's be honest. If it was Doug Ford in Ontario that had said that, it'd be a totally different story. Oh no! I mean, I, I think you can't plead ignorance as much as incompetence. It was just, it was just a sort of a dumb thing to say. Um, you know, you should have anticipated that, that was an issue and not said it. Right? I mean, you should have the common sense to know that, especially when you translate it, it's a problem. And she, of course, said it was a volunteer. We'll never know who it really was. I don't think, hmm. but that's what reeks of incompetence. Um, you know, so I, I agree it shouldn't have been said, but I, I do think it's more incompetent than malicious. Who would have been the stronger candidate for the Liberals, Wang or Lee? From day one? Well, the, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the, the deep inside of, of the local um, Liberal Association. I know that the Liberal Association had someone they wanted that they didn't get. Uh, I actually don't remember who that was. So th- this is a broader problem in Canadian politics where the central office often intervenes or pushes someone that the local folks, the local party folks don't want. This is a problem that's as old as confederation itself right so uh, you know obviously she wasn't ideal and lo- and the local folks kind of had that sense so it's a good reminder to party bosses that they ought to be paying very close attention to what the folks on the ground in, in the individual you know in the individual ridings are telling them about these people why well, what are jagmeet singh's challenges why is he having such a difficult time why are we having this conversation yeah he has been just remarkably disappointing as a leader, and I think there's a few things. One is the NDP isn't doing much worse than historically we'd expect them to do. They're about actually where we'd expect them to be, so they, they deserve the, the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that. 
part of the problem is in 2015, they came pretty close to forming government. And then, then they sort of got high on their own supply. They thought, well, geez, we're competitors. And so when the, the expectations changed a little bit, so that then becomes, you know, for a new leader, the expectations are now higher than they've ever been, right? Which is a problem. Yeah. Even when Malcare lost, he still got, I think, the second best showing in their history. So, you know, that, that threw things off. And the other problem was when Singh ran for the leadership and won, he was hyped as the second coming of Christ. And so, the, you know, he was, he was meant to come out of the gate crushing it, and he didn't, and has been a fairly poor organizer of his staff, and then didn't and waited too long to get a seat in the House of Commons. So he didn't help matters in the way he ran things. And it's just compounded and led us to where we are now. Uh, what about his comments on Venezuela and yeah. the um, and and the leader there and the election and putting his support behind um, uh, obviously the dictatorship as opposed to um, uh, free elections and the other candidate? Yeah, I mean, I understand the hesitancy to to back uh, a U.S. involved um, intervention. In, in Latin America, everyone, you know, these folks remember the 70s, they remember the 80s. There's lots of reasons to be skeptical. Yeah. Um, I also think there's a large group of people in the NDP who are skeptical. But um, my read on it is, is Venezuelans don't respect or want or think the Maduro regime is, is legitimate in the first place. Um, so I, I think most Canadians, if you were to put it to them, would, would agree with the government uh, that, that um, Maduro is illegitimate not to go. So I, I do think he's put himself against the mainstream. But, you know, it depends on what kind of campaign he's running. Is he trying to win the, the middle or is he trying to win the left? With that move, I think he's trying to win the left. Uh, is this going to do him any favors? Uh, again, it depends, I think, on what he's trying to do. You know, if he wants to win 50 seats, no. Um, if he wants to sort of play keep the ball and, and stay at, you know, get 35 or maybe 40 seats, uh, maybe that might do it. But again, I don't think the issue is going to matter that much to Canadians. The truth is when, when you, sam- you know, sample Canadians, you ask right. them about what they care about and how much, mm. this stuff doesn't really crack the top ten. Absolutely. Uh, NDP having ID issues, having problems identifying what it is and, and what they should be. Yes, but, you know, that's since the... Yeah, that's, that's always been the case. Not a new problem for them. Yeah. You know, you, Why you, is that such a problem for them? And again, as you said, this guy came on, he certainly got my attention, slick dresser, well-spoken, uh, seemed like a young, hip guy. What happened? The left has been fragmented in Canada for a very, very long time. And the party system, which is you know, like the distribution of, of how many parties and, and how those parties win or don't win elections, sort of makes it even tougher for the NDP, because what do you do? If you want to form government, well, then you've got to kind of move towards the middle like Jack Layton and Tom Mulcair did, and in part because of what they did, and in part because of what was going on in Canadian politics at the time. The Liberals weren't doing so well. Uh, the NDP had a shot. That worked for them. It didn't ultimately lead them to government, but it helped mm-hmm. get them close. Uh, but that's gone back to normal. Yeah. It's gone, gone back to the mean. And so now The window is decide, closed. Yeah, they missed their opportunity. Now they've got to decide whether or not they want to go left and get 35 seats, 40 seats, run the Bernie Sanders, Cortez campaign, the Corbyn campaign, or whether or not they want to just sort of middle along and try to capture back the middle, which, they, which won't work, because if people want the middle, they'll vote liberal. They're not going to vote the NDP. Yeah, so really, they're forced, aren't they, in what they can do? I mean, um, like you said, unless that window's open and they have the opportunity to veer more towards the right to just, again, become more of a mainstream party, if that opportunity isn't there, they're sort of... It, you know, their path is picked for them, is it not? 
It is, and and I think that's that's the the electoral system too, right? If we had proportional representation, it'd be a different calculation. And in BC, it's a different story because there's only really effectively two parties who can form government in BC. So you see a different sort of dynamic, right? But the the incentives and the structure federally, uh, the NDP is caught. And, and that's that's an old problem. And, and I don't think it's going to get solved for them anytime soon. I mean, you know, the best they can do is hope that the liberals implode. Right. That'll be the best thing that could ever happen to them. Hmm. But they had that opportunity with Ignatius and Dion and they didn't take advantage of it. So they're, they're in a tough spot. They got to do some soul searching to decide what they want to be. Again, how many times have we said that? Uh, well, could could you see the, the could you see the the day, David, when the when the Green Party uh, takes over the position of third party status over the NDP? You know, it's funny. I was talking to someone about this recently. Someone who knows this space, um, and, he, and the way he put it to me was, "There's a non-zero probability <laughs> that that could happen." Uh, you know, in the next election, and I think that's true. Uh, I don't think it's likely, but uh, what about over I time? Yeah, in part because the, the Green Party, you'll notice, doesn't really do the left-right thing so much. Uh, people think sometimes that they do, but they don't. They, they kind of cut across... It's a lot more right, right than what you would think it is once you dig down much under more. the covers. Much more. They're technocrats, right? The, the Green Party approach is like, we want to take expert policy-driven, you know, expert-driven policy solutions and implement them, and we care about the environment a lot. And that's going to appeal to people who, who sort of look at the traditional left-right, the orange team, the red team, the blue team. They don't like what they see. They just want results. The Green Party become a pretty good, pretty good alternative. And Elizabeth May, who's competent, and great at debates, is going to be in the debates in in 2019 with the new changes. Um, she'll look pretty good, I think. Is it time for them to look for no new leadership? She's been at the helm for a while. You, I mean, it's time for them to build out a party that goes beyond her. I mean, she's been a force for a long time and has done some pretty good things for that party. But I mean, the future of the party is finding a way to to build out from, from just one really good MP and longstanding leader. But the party continues to have faith in her. So, I mean, as long as they do, they do. I mean, we, we see it time and time again. Um, but in the long run, they're going to need to find a different strategy to build out. But, you know, that's a couple of electoral cycles down the road. And I can imagine that she doesn't want to be there forever. She's been there a long time. Yeah, yeah, she it's has. Tough job. Um, so what do you think Singh's chances are in the by-election? Over 50%? Oh, yeah, I think he's going to win it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we saw a report circulating yesterday leaked, uh, well, leaked by who knows. It, may, it might have come from the leadership themselves. Strategically dropped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's a weird thing because, you know, the report says, well, if uh, Singh loses, he's gone because the senior caucuses have, have told him that. Right. Um, either they wanted that out and that doesn't say much or they didn't want it out and it says something even worse, which is they can't control Why would the they? Out. Yeah. Why would they plant that? Well, if he wants out, if he wants an out, yeah, you can imagine where he got the gig, not really going super well. He doesn't love it. Maybe he wants out, and this is his chance. Wow. Um, where does that leave? Where does that leave him if he is out, and we're so close to an election? I mean, they've got a couple of senior folks who could step into that job, including people who wanted it, like Charlie Angus and Guy Carroll. And, and frankly, the way I see it going right now, I think either of those guys would run a pretty fine campaign, but especially Charlie Angus. I can see Charlie Angus stepping in and and running the Bernie Sanders campaign mm-hmm. um, and keeping them at 40 seats or something like that. So they do have options. Um, I, I think, put it this way, Singh hasn't been so strong a leader that he'd be missed. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, how much does the pipeline issue play into this? You know, it's funny. I, can't, I mean, the country's divided on the pipeline. Um, EC is divided on the pipeline. 
you know, in the, the, the core left base is mostly anti-pipeline. And so I, it, this is another example of the broader conversation we're just having. You know, do you play to your, your core, in which case you oppose it, or do you try to become a little more ecumenical and you move towards the center? Uh, they've chosen to, to embrace the anti-pipeline stance. I think that's a good way to end up with 16 to 20 percent of the vote. Um, but you're not going to grow it too much more out of that. So, you know, again, what are you going to do? David Moscrop. David Moscrop has been with us, postdoctoral fellow, Simon Fraser University, author of When Is Deliberation Democratic? David, fascinating discussion. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Super Bowl coming up this weekend. Uh, Los Angeles Rams, New England uh, Patriots, all happening Sunday. Uh, and, of course, held in Atlanta. To talk more about all of this, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show and sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well. Before we get into uh, all of the festivities this weekend, your thoughts on the passing of Ron Joyce? Well, you know, this is, uh, this is one of those stories that sort of crosses a whole lot of different categories in the I mean, it was sports because he's tied into Tim Horton, and certainly there's a connection there. And, I mean, Scott, is there a more uh, Canadian, more Hamilton business that's out there? I don't know. That, that's more tied to... I don't think you can... I, I don't think there is one. I'm not sure that you can find one that really... I mean, Canadian tie... I mean, I don't know. I, I, Tim Horton seems to be almost sort of symbolic of a lot of things, and... Um, yeah, he was uh, tonight. Actually, I talked to him a few years ago when they were reopening the. Remember, they rebuilt and reopened the first store uh, in downtown yep. Hamilton or out on the east end of Hamilton. Uh, I had him on the show that night or the night before they were doing the official reopening, and uh, he went on for some time talking about the origins. And there's some pretty funny stories in there of how Tim Hortons became what it was. We're going to replay that interview tonight on the show. So anyone who doesn't know the full story, which even involves a Ouija board and all kinds of other stuff, um, they may want to tune in tonight because uh, he, he had a story. Let me put it that way. What was he like? I didn't know him well. I, I talked to him a couple times. Uh, I know he was rich. <laughs> yeah, we know that. And a philanthropist. And a philanthropist. And obviously, I, I, you know, there are people who become really rich by having one really good idea that just explodes, and they don't, I'm not, I don't know how much work they have to do after the initial um, thing comes into play. There are a lot of people who have come up with ideas that have just, you know, really worked. Uh, I, he certainly had one good idea. He may have had more than one good idea, but I'm not sure you put him into the category of a guy who had that moment and then sat back and just counted the money. I mean, he, everything I know about the story of Ron Joyce is that for decades, I mean, he was a work your finger down to the nub kind of guy to make the Tim Hortons brand go. And uh, so, you know what, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it is certainly, uh, you know, Tim Horton was gone a long, long time ago. This is now really the, the end of the start of that 
that franchise. Yeah, good point. Um, what do you think he? What do you think his thought was? Uh, you know, towards the latter part of his life, perhaps after he sold the whole thing, to to see what it was, how it started, those stories huh. you were describing, to see it become the the mammoth company that it is. Well, the mammoth company it is, and and Scott, the company that what was it a year ago, year and a half ago, when the the minimum wage thing was going on, yeah. like a company that now drives news, not just pushes donuts and coffee. Um, I don't know. That would have been really interesting to hear what he had to say about that. And, of course, I forgot one other thing about Ron Joyce. Uh, A part of Ron Joyce's story that we didn't really get to explore, although a lot of people in the city wish that we could have, Ron Joyce back, I don't even remember how many years ago, at one time during one of our, at least one of our NHL forays where we were trying to get a team, an expansion team. Ron Joyce was the money guy behind that. and He was going to be the majority owner of an NHL team. That, that obviously never happened, but that you wonder how that would have impacted his story in this community as well. Had that ever come together? Good point. Um, Do you think that it's tough for someone like him who starts something like this from the grassroots level is tough to, it's hard to let it go, hard to sell it. Hard to let it evolve into the next generation? Uh, I, as someone who has never actually owned a $1 billion company, uh, yet, yet, I mean, give me time. I, I got a few years left, Scott. But That's uh, right. You still can pull a rabbit out of your hat, buddy. You never know. It, it ain't over till my, it's over. It won't be out of my hat, let me tell you. Um, uh, I, you know what? I, I would expect. I mean, how do you not, as I said before, how do you not, grind at this day after day, year after year, for so many years to make this thing work. And even though you've sold it to other people and other companies have now, bigger conglomerates have taken it over, how do you not still care about it? Or how yeah. do you, how do you, how do you still, how, how do you let go yourself? of it? Yeah. How do you let go of it? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's cliche to say it's like your kid or like your baby, but yeah. you know, in, in some ways I think it's not a terrible comparison when you have brought this thing up and uh you know the difference is of course that when your kid moves out of the house uh it doesn't put a billion dollars or so in your bank account Mm -hmm. unless you have bill gates as your kid um but the same idea you have invested yourself he has invested himself so heavily into this company yeah I, i i would absolutely be shocked if he had just sold it moved on and never given a thought to the Tim Hortons brand again. I, and especially, you know, when, as I say, in the last year or so, when that scandal or discussion was going on about yeah. the, uh, the minimum wage and all that kind of thing, like I'm, I'm sure, yeah. and I don't remember Ron Joyce talking about it, no. but I'm sure he no. had thoughts about that. Uh, what about his philanthropy, his love of sport? Well, I mentioned the hockey, um, and he would have. I mean, his money was he was going to be putting the money up for that. Um, and I think his his investment was something like fifty million at that time. I can't remember the exact number was. Um, the field, the football field at McMaster is the Ron Joyce Stadium. I mean, he's got yep. uh, there's places all over that have his name. And you know, we are we are lucky in this city that we have people who have, you know, some people say, well, look, look how much money he had. Of course, he should have given some away. Well, that's fine. Um, you know what? We have Ron Joyce. We have David Braley. We have Ron Foxhoff. We have guys like this and women, the Jurovinskis, I mean, yep. who have donated huge amounts of money. Yes, they have huge amounts of money, 
But I was reading a story this week uh, that was talking about uh, Jeff Bezos and his wife, and it was talking about their finances and their charitable giving. And over the last number of years, I think it works out to about a quarter of 1% of their fortune is what they've given to charity. Now, it still works out to be a billion dollars or something like that, or half a billion dollars. But you know what? I mean, uh, you look at the people here and you look at a a Ron Joyce and stuff and you say, yeah, they had a lot of money, but they also gave away a lot of money. And so, you know what? Anyone who wants to to quibble or take a a run at them for saying, well, they kept a lot of their money, they had a lot of money, but they Mm -hmm. gave a lot of money away. And there's a lot of stuff in this city that we've benefited from as Hamiltonians because of that. Do you think Hamiltonians have a real soft spot in their heart for him? I hope so. I, I mean, I, again, there are... It was people, one way Hamilton was put on the map. Absolutely. And there are people, Scott, and you know this as well as I do, there are people who just don't like the idea of rich guys yeah. or rich women. There are people who will be never able to wrap their head around that because they don't like the idea that some people have more than they do, and that's the same in any city. But I think that uh, even if not now, in time... But I think now, I mean, I think most people, if you were to say, name somebody who has been impactful on the city of Hamilton in a positive way, how do you not put him right near the top of the list? How do you not do that? Yeah, I hear you. All right, let's talk about Super Bowl. Do you have a Super Bowl ritual? I mean, is this all work for you being a sport guy? So uh, how do you do this? How do you embrace this day? Well, the truth is this year, Scott, I don't know how much of the Super Bowl I'm going to see. Because uh, Sunday afternoon in Toronto, there's a Hamilton guy by the name of Shea Gilgis-Alexander who is in his rookie year with the Los Angeles Clippers of the NBA. Who is He's the first Hamiltonian, I believe, ever to play in the NBA. He's actually in Toronto this Sunday, and so mm. I'll be there uh, doing that. Then I'll be racing home and maybe catching the halftime show with uh, Maroon 5 and whatever body part they care to expose, <laughs> like Janet Jackson. Um, but... No, I don't, I don't typically, uh, you know, uh, like everyone else, you lay on the couch and you eat a lot of junk food and then you feel horrible the next day. So uh, you, don't, you don't go do the party thing, uh, meet with friends, have a ritual, have a barbecue, do any of that? We have done all those things over the years, but there's not... Um, You're getting old. You don't care anymore, do you? Well, it, it, there's just not one that we have stuck to, as you say, when you said it was a tradition. No, we've, we've been to people's houses. We've had people over. We've had the kids over. We've had... Whatever it's um, it's whatever seems to happen that day. But here's the thing: I I really believe for most people, even if they are not football fans, even if they couldn't care less, it's one of those things that sure. somehow over the course of the game, it almost for everybody will end up on the TV for at least some part of the game. Well, it's a, just a good reason to eat and drink, really. Yes. Well, that's pretty much it. So, how does this edition stack up to the past? Your thoughts in the lineup and all of that stuff. Uh, you know what I wish you you came in when we when I was starting this segment you were talking about how it's going to warm up a little bit and we're going to be getting different weather but we've been in this cold freeze don't you wish that a, the Super Bowl was played in weather like the Grey Cup is I wish I why wish so the people they, who spend a bazillion dollars for the tickets would actually have to suffer through something well that, you know <laughs> I just, I just there you rich work, people I, freeze I, I you bastards we work and mock the rich people but um, no I, look. I, I think football is a sport that is supposed to be played outdoors under most circumstances. And I think when you put weather and conditions in the mix, I think it makes for... Then it's a called a Grey Cup. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what the Grey Cup is. And we've had yeah, unbelievable yeah. moments 
in the Great Cup. Sometimes there's been great weather, but what are the ones we really remember? The Snow Bowl in Hamilton in 96 yeah. and the Fog Bowl, the Ice Bowl, and all these different things. Um, you know, the, the NFL wants to have it played in absolutely perfect conditions, and that's the NFL's prerogative. They do that year after year. I think they, it was about four or five years ago they had it in New York, um, which was very unusual to have it outdoors, and they lucked out that the weather was fine. I mean, it rains occasionally. Remember when Prince did his halftime show with the pouring mm. rain yeah, yeah. in Miami? Um, but no, I, look, it, it's, it's, they want to have every player able to play at their absolute best in perfect conditions, so it's a best-on-best best with no outside influences. And that's fine. That's fine. And, and what does that mean? For this game, I don't know. I'm not a prognosticator. All I know is that Tom Brady, who's now 77 years old, <laughs> is still winning all the time. And how do you bet against a guy like that until he starts to show that he's not going to win all the time? So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, are the Rams going to win? Look, you know, I think the last time the Los Angeles, the St. Louis Rams won a few years ago with Kurt Warner as quarterback. I think the last time the Los Angeles Rams won, was with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie in Heaven Can Wait <laughs> back in about 1973. Um, Does this game I, still have the attraction it always has? I mean, there's been lots of controversy, it seems, over the last year with the NFL, whether it's the knee, this, that, or the other, concussions. Uh, is this still the bang that it always has been? I mean, we even saw people uh, arguing over the halftime show. Well, it, it, yeah, it has the attention, certainly. And, I mean, you say the halftime show, the... Maroon 5, who's doing the halftime show this year, I think was, how many people they ask ahead of that, Scott? About 35 yeah, Exactly. Acts, they yeah. all said no. And let's be honest, usually it's, it's you know, a, a acts. I mean, I, I don't think I would say that about Maroon 5. Yeah, I, how's your, uh, what's your Maroon 5 song list like on your phone? Exactly. As my um, mother would say, the Maroon 5s. <laughs> the Maroon 5, yeah, it's Gilligan's Island, it's playing halftime. Um, I, I don't, uh, I, I the fact that there's this much talk about it, though, says that even though they may not have the number one act that you're talking about, it still carries the same weight because politically now it's become a political thing that other bands wouldn't play. If this was an unimportant or insignificant time, all those people, if it was just a case of getting a little exposure, they'd all do it. Yeah. So it, it, things may have changed a bit, but as far as is it still an important cultural touchstone uh, heavily watched it. Yes, of course. And it'll be it'll be the number one viewed TV thing for the entire year again, as it always is. I think the top like eighteen most viewed things on television ever. Yeah. It's event television. Yeah, of course it is. And yeah. as I say, even if you're not a football fan, probably at some point over the course of the game, whether it's for some of the game or for halftime, you will have your TV on and be in front of it for some point of it. Uh, what about officiating for this game, especially after we saw what happened with the New Orleans uh, Rams game and, and a call that obviously should have been made that wasn't? Um, I mean, if this isn't an excuse for technology, what is? How are they going to address that this game? They, are, they actually have uh, 7,000 people praying to all their various deities <laughs> on behalf of the NFL that the refs don't make a call that is going to be the deciding point of this game. I mean, that would be, we saw what happened. That became the entire focal point of this. You, you can make a very good argument that the Rams are not in this game. I, I don't think yeah. it's an argument. I yeah. think it's a yeah. statement. The Rams are not in this game, if not for that blown call. Uh, and here you go. There is already stuff coming out 
about the officials. People have been studying the officials now, and the referee who's doing the game this year, since he became a referee in 2007, has done seven Rams games. You know what the record is of the Rams in those games? Mm. Take a guess. Not good? 7-0. and oh. mm. They've won every oh, game won everyone. done. Oh, they've won everyone. And meanwhile, he did one, this referee did one New England's Patriots game this year. And in that particular game, the Patriots got more flags than in any other game, more penalties than in any other game this year. So everyone's saying, the fix is in. Roger Goodell has chosen his guy because the NFL desperately wants Los Angeles, which is still a struggling market for them. Desperately wants L.A. to win this thing. Doesn't want Tom Brady to win. Remember the deflate gate and all that yeah. stuff that everyone thought that Goodell hates New England? So the, 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 the conspiracy theories have already begun, and while I don't believe any of them, heaven help the NFL if a botched call, a seriously botched call, were to decide this game one way or the other, especially if it went against the Patriots. And I'm not saying you want the refs fighting for the Patriots. I'm saying you want them fighting for nobody. But you imagine with all the stuff that's gone on with the history of the Patriots and all this, and as I say, this city that the NFL desperately wants to get engaged again in the NFL with Los Angeles, if a call like that New Orleans one went against the Patriots at the end of the game and it gave Los Angeles the championship, you would have a, I mean, people might be happy that Brady and Belichick and those guys lost, Hmm. but you would have a credibility crisis like you couldn't believe if that happened back-to-back weeks. Is that the controversy this year, do you think? The, The refing? Yeah. Seems like it. I mean, we don't have any. Well, there might be somebody Neil. I don't know, but I mean, that's in the off season. I probably do you think we'll see know. any? I mean, this is a big event. Lots of people watching. If you if if people want to do this sort of thing, some sort of protest, this is the game to do it. Will we see any of that, or is there just too much at stake here? Uh, who knows? Who I mean, maybe. But you're right. I mean, for the players, they could make their stand. They could do something if they want to. But I think for most of these guys, especially the the players on the Rams who haven't been there before, because the Patriots have been there a lot. Yeah. And the Patriots are not a team typically that ha- that has players that do those kind of things. They are the, they seem to be the definition of team as opposed to individuals. But if you're a guy on the Rams and you've never been to a Super Bowl, I think most of them are going to be focused way more on, you don't know if you're ever getting back here. Let's win this. Let's. I don't know that they're going to be, all focused on making political statements, but you know what? We we will see. Like every time, we will see. Prediction. I know you love doing these, but it's the only reason well, I call. No, I know. As I said <laughs> to you a moment ago, until Tom Brady, until someone shows they can beat Tom Brady consistently, I mean, I know he lost some games this year and he's not perfect, but my goodness, the guy at his age and with the way this team is, how could you possibly go against the Patriots, even if you want them to lose, how do you possibly bet against them with the history that they've had in the last decade or decade and a half or two decades? I mean, it's just until they show that they are down and really down and not coming back like Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, who keeps popping up every time you think she's dead. A lot of movie uh, references this interview, Scott. You, you know, uh, <laughs> I may have to just after the game watch a bunch of Netflix or something. I don't know, but you're watch right. Watch a nice romantic comedy. <laughs> yep. Well, Glenn, you know what it was? I read this week that Glenn Close says she wants to do a, a she wants a, a Fatal Attraction redo, but flipped around where it's now the man who's the crazy stalker, and I guess the woman becomes the normal person, and you know 
anyway. Um, All right. Yeah. So until the Patriots show that they are down and really down and are beaten, I, I just could not bring myself to bet against Tom Brady. All right. Uh, uh, who's on the big show tonight? Obviously, you're going to replay your Ron Joyce interview. Yeah, and we have the uh, what we do every Friday, the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. We will be covering all kinds of stuff from this week that has happened. We might even talk about a few things you talked about on your show. I don't know. All right, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You'll hear it tonight and in sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show tonight. You as well. Stay warm. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.